Most of us love our country. Most of us pray for our leaders. We support our troops. We even pay our taxes after we've exhausted all the loopholes. Actually, most Americans are patriotic. We would even take up arms to defend our country. Nathan Hale, an officer of the Continental Army, was captured by the British Redcoats, and he was sentenced to swing from the gallows. Hale's final words were, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Well, Jeremiah was also patriotic. He loved his nation. I'm sure he was willing to fight to defend his country. Yet rather than fight, God instructed Jeremiah to advocate surrender. Here was the message that God gave him. Judgment is inevitable. Fighting will be foolish. The enemy is now God's instrument to oppose Babylon is to resist God's will. That's a tough message for a patriot to deliver. It went against his every fiber. It was like asking the joint chiefs to initiate a unilateral disarmament. And yet this was the message that God called Jeremiah to herald. Chapter 24 begins. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Go figure. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good. And the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are bad. This vision was given to Jeremiah after the second deportation of Jews to Babylon. The first occurred in 605 B.C. in the reign of Jehoiakim. The king of Babylon was fresh off a victory at Carchemish up north in the Syrian frontier. He had defeated the Egyptians and the Assyrians. It was really Babylon's statement. They were now the lone world power, the superpower of the day. And Nebuchadnezzar was on a warpath. He moved south and he wanted to flex his muscle. And so Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah and he took captive a few of the Jewish nobles. He took them prisoner back to Babylon. You'll recognize four of these names. One was Daniel. Daniel was taken back to Babylon at that time. Three others, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Those names are familiar to you. No, you probably know them by their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were the good figs. The second deportation occurred in 597 B.C. After Babylon's failed invasion of Egypt, Jeconiah, who was the king of Judah at the time, he rebelled against Babylon and he allied himself with Egypt. This was a mistake. For when Nebuchadnezzar heard of it, he put down Judah's revolt by taking King Jeconiah into captivity, as well as the prophet Ezekiel, Here were told many of the skilled craftsmen and even the bronze vessels from the temple. They too were good figs. They were those Jews that were taken back to Babylon. The good figs were those that were taken to Babylon. The bad figs were those that were left behind. In Jeconiah's place, Nebuchadnezzar installed a king that he hoped would be loyal to him, Jeconiah's uncle, a man named Zedekiah. History tells us that after this second deportation, Nebuchadnezzar had to put down a couple of uprisings to his east. This gave the Jewish false prophets hope that Nebuchadnezzar and Babel would be toppled. Despite Jeremiah's warning to the contrary and his pleas for Judah to surrender to Babylon, King Zedekiah listened to the false prophets and he rebelled again. And this set up the final siege of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar came, his armies destroyed Jerusalem, they laid siege to the city, they destroyed, broke down its walls, 
burned its temple and took most of the remaining Jews back to Judah. Judah became a province of Babylon, putting an end to an independent Jewish kingdom. The Babylonian conquest of Judah is a strategic event in biblical history. For it began an era that the scripture refers to as the times of the Gentiles. Starting with the fall of Jerusalem until today, the Gentile nations have dominated the Jews. And the kingdom of God, once embodied physically, politically in Israel, has since gone underground. This is the reason that God gave to Jeremiah a new covenant. And under this new covenant, the kingdom of God would take a different form. From now on, or at least during the times of the Gentiles, the kingdom of God will function spiritually rather than politically. It will function personally in one's heart rather than provincially in the government. The kingdom of God would take a totally different shape during the times of the Gentiles. Daniel describes the succession of Gentile kingdoms who will rule the world. Chapter 2 of Daniel pictures them as flashy metals, what they might look like as seen by men. Chapter 7 envisions them as ferocious, devouring beasts, which is what they look like through God's eyes. These Gentile world-dominating kingdoms, Babylon, followed by Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome, and then a last day's kingdom that will be headed by the Antichrist. And it's during this yet future kingdom that Jesus will return and will establish his kingdom on earth, this time physically and politically. So don't think Jeremiah's prophecy only relates to some bygone era with no relevance to us today. Rather, it still sets up future events and the fulfillment of all God's promises. To understand these visions is important because we're seeing the fulfillment of them even today. Well, verse 4 continues. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. Now notice that phrase. For their own good. Oh boy. If you had been a Jew living in the besieged city. If they had broken down the walls and ravaged your family and demolished your home. Would you be saying, well this is for my own good. Probably not. No child likes to be spanked. But it's necessary training. You better spank them. The best time to deal with a major problem is when he's a minor. It's for their own good. And so it is with God's discipline in our lives. God too allows trials and difficulties in our lives. We don't like it. We we don't feel good about it. But it is for our own good. You see, God's goal in us is not just to bless us. It's not just to just pour on the blessing. But He wants to mature us. He wants our faith to grow. He wants us to develop some muscle. You could say his goal is to bless us, but not baby us. He's raising strong believers, not spoiled brats. There is some discipline in God's plan. Hebrews 12 verse 6 tells us, whom the Lord loves, he does what? He chastens. He says, for I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down And I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. And here is the preamble for this new covenant that God makes with with Jeremiah. We'll talk much about it over the next few weeks. The new covenant involves three promises. First, there will be a regathering of the Jews back to the land. Second, is there'll be a spiritual regeneration in the people's hearts. And then third, there'll be a reestablishment of God's kingdom in Israel. Here Jeremiah mentions the first two of these promises. He talks about how God is going to bring them back to the land 
And then he's going to give them a new heart to know me, he says. Verse 8, And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord, and here's the bad figs, So will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. You see, there were Jews who had fled to Egypt in fear of the Babylonians. God had commanded them not to flee, but to surrender. They didn't trust him to do that. And so they fled to Egypt, and their plight was worse in Egypt than they would have been in Babylon. He says, I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. As it turns out, the Jews actually prospered during their time in Babylon. And those that fled down to Egypt and elsewhere, instead of surrendering to Babylon, ended up in trouble. And there's a big lesson for us to learn here. A big part of our repentance is accepting the consequences of our sin. It really is. The Jews had blown it. I mean, by this point, they had passed the point of no return. Judgment was coming. And rather, real repentance would have been accepting that and surrendering to it and trusting God to work through it. Instead, they still bucked. They still fought. They still resisted God's will. The Jews didn't want to surrender to Babylon. It went against their grain. But it was the bed that they had made for themselves And now they would have to learn to live in it or to lie in it. Chapter 25 tells us. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. As we mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, it's not in chronological order. The prophecy here in chapter 25 was given 18 years before the prophecy in chapter 24. Chapter 25, you could call it a midlife reflection or a mid-ministry reflection on Jeremiah's part. He has ministered now for 23 years. He'll end up ministering 17 more years. And so he's sort of at the midpoint. And here's the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying... From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And I wish I could read it with the frustration that I'm sure Jeremiah had. He had been faithful to speak. You know, he's, he's you know, I rose up early. I showed up early to work to give you this message. But you refused to listen. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. The Jews treated Jeremiah the way they had all the prophets. And Jeremiah was smart enough not to take it personally. And he says, I I understand. He says, you... I've done my part, but you haven't listened. That's why we're where we are. That's why we're in the boat that we're in. Jeremiah was smart enough not to take the results personally. You know, often when we're rejected for our faith, when someone uh, shuns us because of our Christian witness, a lot of times we take it personally, but we shouldn't. It's not really us that they're shunning. What we stand for is being scorned, not us. He says in verse 5, They said, Repent now, every one, of his, every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, That you might provoke me to anger with the words of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not heard my words, behold, 
I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Now, for centuries, for centuries, God had called the Hebrew people my servant. How shocking it was for them to now hear God refer to this idol-worshiping, Jew-hating, uncircumcised Gentile Babylonian named Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. You know, this is what had happened. God was going to use Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians against his own people. Nebuchadnezzar was probably the most absolute despot the world has ever seen. He erected a golden image of himself and threatened the world with a fiery furnace if they didn't bow down and pay homage. Nebuchadnezzar was an egomaniac. He was wicked and he was barbarous, and yet God calls him my servant. Realize God can use anybody. You know, it reminds me, just because God uses a person doesn't mean that he condones all that that person does. Never forget that. God can use anyone, even a tainted vessel. He uses the corrupt pastor to win people to Jesus. Then he turns around and he judges that pastor for his corruption. Don't be proud that God has used you. Remember, God spoke through, the, through a donkey. God can use anybody. He may be using you in spite of you, not because of you. Verse 10 tells us, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The sound of the millstones spoke of commerce. The light of the lamp spoke of safety. God is going to shut down business. No one is going to feel safe any longer. He's going to blow out the candle at night in fear of what the darkness holds. He shuts down the weddings and the celebrations. Judgment is coming. Verse 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And this is an amazing prophecy. Realize this is, this is years before these events unfold. And yet God reveals the exact time period, the duration of their captivity. The first deportees were taken to Babel in 605 B.C. The Persians defeated Babylon in 536 B.C. And one of the first decrees issued by the Persian conqueror Cyrus was for the Jews to return to their homeland. The first Jews returned home with Governor Zerubbabel in 535 B.C., exactly 70 years after their exile had begun, just as Jeremiah had said. It's also interesting. Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was burned in 586 B.C. The temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. The foundations were. But the temple was finished by Ezra in 515 B.C. Again, 70 years after the temple was destroyed. Either way you count it, the time period is the same. 70 years separated the servitude of the nation and the return of the Jews to their land. And of course the question arises, why 70 years? We're told why in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. You see, the law of Moses not only required a Sabbath day, it also required a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, the land was to rest or to lie dormant. This allowed it to replenish itself of nutrients. But for 490 years... Greedy, unbelieving Israel had disobeyed this law. And so every year of disobedience, God sent them 
sentenced them to one year in Babylonian exile. In the end, God made sure that the land rested those 70 years. It's interesting, while living in Babylon, Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. And he came upon this verse. He realized that the 70 years was about to expire. And at that moment, God sent the angel Gabriel. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 9. God sent the angel Gabriel with one of the most thrilling prophecies in all of the Bible. Since it took 490 years, or 70 periods of seven years, for Judah to get into such trouble, it will take them 490 years, or 70 periods of seven years, to make things right. And Daniel is shown another 490 future years in which the Jews will be made righteous and God's kingdom will be restored. It's a fascinating study. We'll get to it eventually in a few months. Daniel 9 gives us the details of this redemptive 490 years. Just to give you a little brief outline, after the first 483 years, Messiah will come. And he'll be cut off for his people, Daniel said. Daniel 9 predicts the exact day, April the 6th, 32 A.D., that Jesus presented himself to the nation by riding his donkey down the mountain to, in the city of Jerusalem, what we call the triumphant entry. Four days later, he was crucified or cut off, just as Daniel had said. And then the last seven years of that period is still yet to come. Now, amazingly... Modern Jewish farmers are just as reluctant to obey the Sabbath year laws as were the ancient farmers. The problem is the same today as it was then. Their lack of faith. I read just recently how that modern Israelis, they devised a clever loophole to get around the law of the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, all the public lands in Israel used for agriculture are sold... By the state rabbinate to a non-Jew, usually a Christian Arab. His identity is kept secret. He sells it back to them at the end of the year. But since the Sabbath law applies only to Jewish-owned land, Gentile ownership allows it to be farmed. It's a scam. It's a dodge. But it appeases legalistic Jews and their rabbis and enables them to feign obedience to the law. Sounds a lot like what was going on in Jesus' day, doesn't it? You remember it was the Jewish mentality at the time of Christ. The rabbis had constructed these elaborate workarounds. Many of them Jesus exposed for their hypocrisy. Reminds me of W.C. Fields. He was a well-known skeptic. That's why one day his friend saw him thumbing through a Bible. He asked him, he said, what are you doing? Fields replied, looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. The loophole mentality doesn't work with God. He judges our hearts. Verse 12, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. And we'll study Jeremiah's specific judgments against Babylon in chapters 50 and 51. He says, For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. God used Babylon to judge many nations. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. But being his servant didn't make him immune to God's judgment. For after he was done using Nebuchadnezzar, he would eventually judge him. He says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Jeremiah is giving a warning. He's being given a message, not only for Judah, but for all the other nations. He says, Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink, to whom the Lord had sent me. 
Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is to this day. He says, give this wine to the nations. Watch them stagger as if they were drunk. Watch them fall down into judgment. He says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, all the mixed multitudes, all the kings of the land of Uz. And he begins to enumerate those nations that he's about to judge. He mentions the land of Uz. Uz was southeast of Judah. It was a home for the Arabian tribes. He says, all the kings of the land of the Philistines. And he mentions four of their cities, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. And then he mentions the relatives of Israel. They'll be invaded by Babylon. Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon. In verse 22, he mentions all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon. These were the Phoenician capitals known for their nautical expertise and their their voyages across the sea. Thus he mentions, and the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea. And this is a provocative statement. What does he mean by across the sea? Does that mean the Mediterranean Sea? Could that mean the Atlantic Ocean? Was Jeremiah speaking of the New World? He mentions more Arabian tribes in verse 23. Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam. And that Elam is an important name. Elam will later be known as Persia. This is the kingdom that will overthrow the Babylonians. In modern times, Elam is known as Iran. And all the kings of the Medes. Media joined with Persia in overthrowing Babylon. Their kingdom was known as Medo-Persia. Jeremiah gives detailed judgments against all these nations in chapters 46 through 51. He mentions all the nations of the world at the time, but notice where he begins. Go back to verse 18. He starts in Jerusalem, which illustrates a principle that Peter declared. 1 Peter 4 verse 17 tells us, Judgment always begins at the house of the Lord. And indeed it does. Verse 26, All the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world, which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Now this is interesting. Shishak was a code word for Babylon. God was using the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment, not only against Judah, but against all the nations. But then he'll judge Babylon. As a side note, this name Shishak is a cipher. It's an example of a secret Hebrew code known as Atbash. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Atbash was a substitution code where you subbed the first letter for the last letter, the second letter for the 21st letter, the third letter for the 20th letter, etc., etc. You see, Jeremiah spoke freely about the Babylonians when he was addressing his fellow Jews, but these judgments were intended for the nations. Thus they could fall into the wrong hands, and so here he speaks of Babylon in code. Verse 27, Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more, because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. They'll drink of God's judgment. They'll fall down drunk with judgment. They'll be overcome. For behold, I will bring, begin to bring calamity on the city, which is called by my name. And should you be utterly punished, you shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. If God is willing to judge his own city and people, Jerusalem, will he not judge other nations as well? Indeed he will. 
Therefore, prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He will roar mightily against His fold. Jeremiah pictures God's judgment as a lion let loose in a sheepfold. The Babylonian armies will be bloody. They'll be ugly. They'll be ruthless. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. In the Bible, the stomping of the grapes is a picture of God's judgment against the nations. It's juicy or, again, bloody. It's violent. He says, a noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. And notice the scope of this prophecy. On several times now, he's already talked about the inhabitants of the whole earth. He has expanded the scope, not just to the nations around Judah, but to the ends of the earth, he says. Jeremiah also says God will tread on the inhabitants of the earth. God's case is said to be against all flesh. Here's my point. I believe that Jeremiah is seeing beyond just his local and current situation. Not just the Babylonian invasion that's about to occur. But he's looking to the end times. A final judgment. A judgment that will encompass all the earth. The judgment that Jesus will bring when he returns to this earth to settle the score with all nations and all people. There's a day coming when Jesus will return. He'll bring judgment to this earth. Here what Jeremiah sees is what New Testament eyes would call the Great Tribulation. In fact, John in Revelation 19 verse 15 uses this very same language. He speaks of Jesus. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus will tread the winepress. He'll bring the stomping and the violence. Recall in Revelation 5, Jesus is seen as what? As the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion who comes and roars. And brings judgment against the sheepfold. In Revelation, Jesus is the one person worthy to open the seals and take possession of this universe. When the lion roars is when Jesus returns to earth the second time. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. And that should be the case with all the nations of the earth, they all should be trembling today. If they believed that truth, they would be fearing the Lord's appearing because He's coming soon. Verse 32. And thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster will go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. And again, this kind of devastation is unparalleled in history. These verses only make sense when read in light of revelation and the massive destruction that is coming upon this planet just before Jesus returns. You read Revelation, you realize that by the end of the seven years of tribulation, the Bible tells us that over half the earth's population will be dead, slain. So many slain, so many slaughtered, that they can't all be buried. That many will just be left on the ground, you know, to return to the, to the dust. He says, wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel. And the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. Earlier, Jeremiah had spoken of the political leaders as the people's shepherds. Here, judgment is coming upon those leaders. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard. For the Lord has plundered their pasture 
and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like the lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Jesus came the first time as a lamb. He was gentle. He was loving. He was merciful and kind. He handled us with kid gloves, did he not? He even died as a sacrifice for our sins. But he will come a second time as the lion. His claws and jaws will be ready to pounce. His roar will be one of fierce anger and judgment. Chapter 26 is dated for us. In the beginning of the year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them do not diminish a word. God wanted Jeremiah to speak to all the villages of Judah. And since all the males of the Jews were required to come to the temple three times a year, well, Jeremiah decided just to kill two birds with one stone. He'd just go to the temple. Rather than go to all the villages, he'd just go to the temple and he could address them at one of the major feasts. And which feast it was, we're not sure. But trust me, Jeremiah's message here had the effect of crashing the party. While the Jews were there in their temple, while they were busy with their feasts and celebrations, hey, while they were playing religion, suddenly... Jeremiah's voice thunders over their powerless prayers. It was A.W. Tozer who once wrote, Most men play at religion as they play at games, religion itself being of all games the one most universally played. Another author writes, I find no quality so easy to counterfeit as religious devotion. It's true. Love for God is easy to fake. Learn the lingo, memorize a few verses, and you can play the game. Everybody in Jeremiah's day was playing except God. God don't play. He's serious about our devotion. He expects our sincerity. Verse 3. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. Here God is still holding out an opportunity for them to repent and to escape this judgment. Now God reminds Jeremiah of both the content and the intent of his word and of the prophet's preaching. Here we have what to say and the why to say. First, notice the content. Go back to the last line of verse 2. Jeremiah was told, do not diminish a word. This is the content of every pastor's preaching. Should be. The Hebrew word translated diminish means to shave or to lessen or to hold back. And God is instructing Jeremiah not to soften what he's been given to say. Jeremiah, don't water it down. Don't shave off the tough edges here. Often pastors let the fear of offending end up amending what God told them to say. They add to or they leave off or they just soften up the message. They shave off an edge or they lessen a truth. Hey, the content is very important. We need to tell it as is. We need to tell the whole truth. And nothing but the truth. It's been said, some people water down the word of God to the point where if it were a medicine, it wouldn't heal. And if it were a poison, it wouldn't harm. We shouldn't mess with the content. Don't diminish a word, he says. And then we should remember the intent. The intention of Jeremiah's preaching, the intention of my preaching 
should be for people to repent, to turn from their evil way. A pastor is not in the entertainment business. Sure, I'm wise if I'm entertaining and if I hold people's attention. My first step is to get them to listen. But that's only a means to an end. When they listen, my desire is to convict them with God's truth and to have them repent. It's only if we repent that we can escape God's judgment. When we hear God's word, we need to turn from our sin and follow the Lord. Vance Havner wrote of pastors, he said, It is not the business of the preacher to fill the house. It is his business to fill the pulpit. That is, to fill it with the right content and the right intent. Verse 4. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Remember, Jeremiah is speaking these words in the temple. And it was in the temple that the Jews had put their trust See, here's what they were thinking. They were confident that God wouldn't dare allow any harm to come to their holy temple. Not the temple. This is God's house. Some scholars called it a temple fetish. It was similar to a superstition. They treated the temple as if it were a good luck charm. Hey, they were trusting in the things of God rather than in God himself. Have you been guilty of that? You know, the Jews thought that if they just went to the temple, just paid their tithes, just offered a sacrifice, oh, everything would be okay. And isn't that how folks treat God today? If I go to church, if I just pay, give a little offering every now and then, you know, get involved, do a little sacrificial work or something, you know, everything will be fine. That's religion, but that's not a relationship with God. There's no love in that. There's no loyalty to that. People give God a mechanical observance, a token acknowledgement. But God wants more from us. As Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. To do God's will, to follow Him with your whole heart. Prior to the building of the temple, the ark of God in God's glory, His presence, rested in Shiloh for 300 years And yet that didn't stop the Philistines from conquering Shiloh and actually stealing the ark. And it's not going to stop the Babylonians from destroying the temple if the Jews don't repent. It's interesting, Ezekiel wrote his prophecy about the same time that the book of Jeremiah was penned. In Ezekiel chapter 10, read it tonight when you go home. It records the removal of God's glory from the temple. You see, the temple was holy, not because there was something special about the the structure. The temple was holy because God was there. Once God removed His presence, all that was left was stone and mortar. And in removing His presence in Ezekiel chapter 10, God was preparing for the temple's demolition, which took place when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem. Verse 7. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You shall surely die. Now remember, this wasn't the first time that God had sent Jeremiah to speak in the temple. In chapter 7, in the reign of Josiah earlier, He had delivered a similar message. But remember, Josiah was a godly king whose reign had sort of covered Jeremiah or protected Jeremiah. That's why the priests at the time in chapter 7, those that opposed the prophet, they wanted him silenced, but they plotted his assassination secretly. Their opposition was undercover. But hey, those days are now gone. A wicked king, Jehoiakim, is now on the throne. There's nothing to hold back Jeremiah's enemies. They show no restraint. 
When he preaches this message, they run and they seize him. They make public death threats. They scream at him, you shall surely die. They say, why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? No, how dare you talk about our temple that way? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Notice, all the people, everyone was against him. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. See, all this had been instigated by the priests, but now they're joined by the political crowd. The princes and all have come down to see what's happening. This is not a separation of church and state. This is the joining of church and state against the prophet Jeremiah. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your ears. It was Blaise Pascal who once said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And here the leaders of Jerusalem are the classic example. Verse 12. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. He had not diminished a word, had he? Now therefore amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. What a courageous man. He's been seized by an angry mob of clergy and politicians. His life is being threatened. He has but one chance to make his defense, and he refuses to blink. He doesn't back down one step, not the slightest. Even with his life on the line, he is committed to the truth that God has given him. Verse 16. So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. It's interesting, the politicians come to their senses before the religious leaders. The priests want to kill him, but the politicians realize they have no grounds. And isn't this what happened at the trial of Jesus It's interesting. It was Pilate and Herod that wanted to release Jesus. The politicians agreed to his crucifixion only because the priest insisted. This is just one of the similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah. Remember, they both were never married. Neither did they have kids. They both were considered men of sorrow. This is why when Jesus asked his disciples there in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16... Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The disciples responded, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah. It's interesting. Jesus was identified with Jeremiah. Jesus and Jeremiah, they had a lot in common. Well, verse 17. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and spoke to all the people of Judah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now here's what happens. The city elders, they start quoting scripture. Over a hundred years earlier, during the reign of the revered king Hezekiah, Another prophet, the prophet Micah. You have his book in the Old Testament as well. In Micah 3 verse 12, he gave the same warning as did Jeremiah. That Jerusalem will be plowed under and become ruins. That even the temple mount would become a bare hill. And after quoting Micah, this elder draws a conclusion. He says, did Hezekiah king of Judah 
in all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them? But we are doing great evil against ourselves. Then he came to his senses. Some skilled lawyer had combed the annals of their history and had come up with a precedent. They should be glad that their forefathers didn't kill Micah. He spoke a similar message. The people took heed to it and they repented and the nation was saved. He says, now there was also a man, he come up with another case, who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirajarim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, Elnathan the son of Achbor, and other men who went with him to Egypt, And they brought Uriah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. This brings up another case of which we know nothing about except this mention. Apparently Jeremiah was not the only faithful prophet at the time. Uriah also spoke the word of God, a message similar to Jeremiah. Makes you wonder though that if Uriah hadn't become afraid and fled, perhaps God would have delivered him just as he did Jeremiah. And then he concludes, nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. Evidently, they listened to the arguments that came from this man, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Esquire. He was a lawyer, apparently. He was serving as Jeremiah's legal counsel. You know, I've heard it said, not all lawyers are liars. It's just the 98% that give the rest of them a bad name. But this Ahikam was one of the few good lawyers. And we should praise the Lord tonight for the Christian attorneys that are out there that are willing to defend God's people in the cause of Christ. May God raise up more Ahikams.